Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, here at the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners on key takeaways from this first day of Sea Airspace and a look at the week ahead. But first, Joining me are retired United States Navy Commander Brian Clark, a retired submarine officer, and Dan Pat, who are both with the Hudson Institute Think Tank. They are the co-authors of One Size Fits None, Overhauling JADC2 to Prioritize the Warfighter and Exploit Adversaries' Weaknesses. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. HII, formerly known as Huntington Ingalls Industries, is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Bell is sponsoring our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. And I should note that L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Guys? So the administration uh, has unveiled what is the largest uh, research uh, and development uh, budget. Uh, Brian, why don't you uh, start us off, right? From the standpoint of what it is the administration is investing in, have they gotten it right from your perspective? I, I think they largely got it right. Um the the uh, in terms of the priorities they established and and some of the things they're investing in, um, you know, for example, let's talk hypersonics. That's one area that gets a lot of attention recently. Um, I think the administration uh, did a good job by backing off of the relatively heavy investment in boost glide systems that uh, you know refl- was reflected in previous budgets. Uh, the boost glide systems are expensive. You know, there's challenges with regard to where you're going to deploy them, um, and I think they've identified you know. Uh, one deployment mechanism for the Navy, which is the DG-1000. They've identified that the Army is going to get a small number of these weapons, a battery of them to deploy in the Western Pacific. And that's probably about right because they're a high value weapon that would get employed against high value targets. Uh, And then most of the emphasis is going to go on to air breathing hypersonic weapons that the Air Force will develop. And those have a smaller price, more places to deploy them from, more airplanes, obviously, to deploy them from. Um, probably a lot better application of that money uh, than, than in boost glide weapons. Uh, hypersonic defense um, actually got a little bit less money this year, or it's relatively flat, I mean, it, overall, which uh, that's one problem. I think that you know the administration said they were going to try to emphasize hypersonic defense more. It looks like it didn't really get uh, any more love uh, than they had in previous years, but at least it didn't go down relative to previous years. Um, so that's one area that I thought was interesting. Um, and, and another area I'll bring up is um, in terms of uh, the electromagnetic warfare. Uh, that's a area you know, near and dear to my heart. Pretty flat overall, you know. So uh, you saw the Army's uh, zero, zeroing out the electronic warfare package for its um, large uh, its, its UAVs, the Gray Eagle UAVs, which is the multifunctional electronic warfare system, large. Um, but you know, so electronic warfare across the board in DoD didn't really get a lot of additional attention. Um, undersea warfare, another area we do a lot of work in. 
Similarly, um, not dramatically increased, although that they did increase funding for medium and small UVs substantially, which I think is a good idea. That's where there's a lot of potential. Um, the large UV, which would be deployed by a submarine, actually got zeroed out, which is probably a good idea because that program is going to, the use case is very difficult to pull off. Um, but those are some of my initial thoughts. And I, I know Dan's got some ideas as well. Yeah, Dan. Uh, go, and I, I just wanted to point out, right? Let me let me just ask one follow up before uh, you, you go, Dan. Um, what did you make of? Uh, it does look like the air launch rapid effects uh, weapon, the air launch rapid response weapon, right? Lockheed Martin is developing this for the Air Force, the Mach 20, 1,000 mile uh, hypersonic uh, air launched weapon. Um, it's a challenging requirement. The program is slow. Uh, do you do you agree with sort of the dial slight dialing back and and putting it on probation effectively over over a year? Yes. So I think that's a good idea. I mean, I think the um, the air launch rapid attack weapon, the or the it's a boost glide weapon, you know, air launch from aircraft. Um, again, it has um, it's large, expensive. Um, you know, it has some of the same challenges with its use case as the boost glide weapons from uh, the surface do. I think putting the money into air breathing weapons is a much better use of the hypersonic dollars uh, that, that DOD has. Dan, uh, your sense on, on the whole portfolio and where the administration ended up? First, I agree with Brian's uh, top level comments. Uh, a few thoughts are, you know, some of the key administration priorities or department priorities uh, from the past budgets and presumably still today are related to Pacific Deterrence Initiative, JADC2, multi-domain operations. Those topics uh, re you know, received very late treatment in the budget. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of the you know, uh, roll up of, of those activities, at least, uh, at least in the budget documents released really so far. Um, uh, another thing that stood out to me was current priorities uh, driven by the NDS related to campaigning or experimentation. Uh, it's again, hard to see that rolled up uh, about where exactly, you know, new activity is going. Uh, and then finally in, in integrated deterrence where the budget brief spends time breaking down integrated deterrence. A lot of those elements or line items still look like uh, our existing or, or more conventional uh, capabilities and, and modernization plans. So, you know, I think I think one thing that's missing from from this budget brief is unrolling those top priorities into actual spending plans. Um, what do you guys think Congress will not like? Uh, and put another way, you know, sort of on another vein, right? If if you guys were going to give them advice or how they could improve this, what what would those include? Start us off, uh, Brian. Yeah. So. Um, uh... You know, as Dan noted, um, there's some big holes here that the strategy is not implemented through investments, at least from, as we can tell, as far as we can tell in the R&D lines. Uh, for example, this idea of campaigning, which is one of the three major lines of effort inside the defense strategy, would imply we have some kind of ongoing effort to uh, as they say, undermine the, the confidence or undermine the decision-making of opponents uh, to enter refine our own capabilities. That's what campaigning is supposed to entail. So it would seem like we would put a lot of money into experimentation, uh, R&D associated with experimentation, uh, both to demonstrate to potential adversaries that, hey, we're continuing to generate new capabilities that you guys can't predict, 
um, and also to you know help us better understand you know what we might be able to do that that influences enemy decision making. And I didn't see that kind of investment reflected in at least what we've been provided thus far. There isn't that kind of a, you know massive increase in experimentation and R and D associated with experimentation. As a matter of fact, the Raider program um, doesn't really have its own you know budget line item uh, anymore, whereas it previously had a bucket of money associated with it for uh, you know, a rapid development and experimentation reserve. That money is no longer you know, cordoned off for simply that purpose. It's now a more diffuse effort out into the services. So I think that's a big hole that um, DOD needs to address if it's going to implement its strategy. And this is going to be something Congress asks about, because they're, they're going to say, how are you deterring China? Um, and DOD is going to say, well, we made some investments in uh, missile defense, in long-range strike, in you know, kind of traditional platforms, um, but those investments are largely offset in terms of capacity by all these divestments that we made in terms of reprioritization. So I think the traditional investments that Dan highlighted aren't going to be a very compelling case because of all the divestments that are accompanying them. And then I think in the areas where they could maybe argue they're trying to get an enduring advantage, they don't have the there's nothing of substance to back that up, if at least in the budget documents we've seen thus far. Dan? Yeah, I think Brian framed it well. I, I mean, I think the one other dimension that I might add is there's been uh, a lot of discussion from the department and others uh, about how certain key threats, especially in the Pacific, uh, are, really could be quite near term. Uh, I would expect that Congress would be asking questions, uh, looking at you know when this new budget request, when those capabilities would be coming online and looking at the gaps between what the department, when the department says it has its problems and when that budget delivers the capabilities. I, I do think that there's um, there's some important gaps to, to be unbundled and explored there. Um, speaking of important gaps, Dan, I'll, I'll let you uh, take a bite of this apple uh, first. Uh, JADC2, the Joint All Domain Command and Control System, has been uh, a Pentagon priority, right, a number one priority uh, for years. Uh, the administration has a new strategy out. General Crawl uh, issued that uh, from a joint staff standpoint. But it still looks like each of the services are going to sort of go ahead and do their own thing, right? The Navy uh, has said that it's Project Overmatch, the Army is Project Convergence, uh, and the Air Force is uh, the Air Battle Management System, or ABMS. Um, and, and it doesn't have that integration that initially we wanted to see. Dan, sort of start us off, right? Where's the administration Where's the administration going with this program? And are they on the right track? And is General Crawl's strategy the right strategy um, given how closely you guys have investigated this, and we're going to talk about the report you two put together in a, in a moment, but I want to just sort of get that verdict uh, on what they're doing first. Yeah, Vago, I think you have an important observation. Uh, actual spending and actual activity is being driven by the services. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, that's some version of service all domain C2 or surface cross domain C2. And what, what are the aspects which, which are really joined, right? There's there's a missing piece there of around that jointness. How do you drive to that joint integration? Uh, to, to be fair to, to General Crawl, right? The tools of the joint staff tie their hands, right? They aren't directly overseeing funding. They aren't directly overseeing integration activity. So their tools are working through the requirements process. And that is a, that is a, a, a slow and difficult tool uh, so while you know General Call may be wielding that tool well, the reality of the matter is there isn't an active activity in the department that is driving 
disjoint integration around problems that matter, especially in the Pacific. So yeah, there's a real gap around joint integration, uh, in my opinion. Brian? Yeah, it's, it, and it, as Dan said, um, the, the, the big problem we have in the DOD today is the fact that when we train, prepare, deploy forces, it's all as a service. They're all developed as a service-centric you know, approach. And then we train and prepare them to, for deployment as a service. They arrive in theater and the combatant commander now has to integrate all these service you know, units into a joint force. Uh, that's really the first place joint integration happens is out at the COCOM. Um, but to uh, integrate the joint force through JADZ2, we have this top-down uh, Pentagon-driven effort that is attempting to set universal standards and requirements that will apply to everybody in all situations throughout all time, um, which is the standard approach that the joint staff uses. Uh, but it's very limited in trying to drive change, right? Because it'll take forever for those changes to actually you know, manifest themselves in the, in the, in the force, in the fleet. Um, so what we're arguing is instead of waiting decades for JADC2 to somehow you know, result in some improvement in interoperability and, and joint integration let's flip this you know process and you know look look at the cocom where the customer uh, of dod's capability development efforts uh, the customer you know should be driving this really because we have a much more urgent problem than the joint staff's process will allow us to meet you know we don't have decades to wait we've got to get this done in the next years you know one to two to three years maybe um, which means we should be trying to pursue something that's organized around a smaller set of problems, not universal problems, uh, and then focus it on what the customer needs today, which is what the combat commanders need in UCOM and in Indo-Pacific Command. Um, so th that that's a, the fundamental challenge is this top-down process isn't working. We need something bottom-up. Um, and if you look at DOD's investments in the budget that was just released, there's almost there's no mention of JADC2, um, and there's very little when you look at the detail we have been provided that goes towards any of these uh, functions that are designed to knit forces together, whether it's through interoperable networks or through decision aids, uh, or through even the ability to do tactics development uh, for joint forces. Um, so, and, uh, Lago, it, it, yeah, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, if I could just chime in one thing, I think I think there's something that, that might not be obvious, that there's a lesson that we can draw from the commercial world. We see these complex information systems that show up in commercial enterprise. Uh, Here's the key point. Those complex information systems, big commercial tech developments, they don't start by laying out architecture and standards for this, for this ultimate vision. They start by tackling use cases, right? This is everything from the internet, right? When ARPANET started, he didn't imagine what are the requirements of Netflix someday to distribute video to everybody. It's you start small with one use case, it works a little bit, and then you see what else you can do with it. They evolve. And that's the way this joint integration has to work, starting with these hard use cases, these hard kill chains, and expanding, seeing what else you can do, and letting it grow from there. It needs to grow uh, in this more organic evolutionary fashion. And this is it's the same thing you see everywhere in the tech sector. You know, NVIDIA didn't start out trying to be uh, this AI computing dominant player, right? They started out with dirt simple graphics cards, and they became a software powerhouse. JADC2 needs to work the same way. Um, let me uh, go to you. Uh, our, our time is brief, but I have to ask you about your uh, report because strangely enough, uh, Brian, it seemed like you guys uh, sort of 
saw where this uh, particular puck was going to go in making your uh, advice how to make it better. Give us this. I just want to really quick get uh, both of your senses on your report and tell everybody that they can go to the Hudson website uh, to download it uh, and, and read it in, in full because it's, it's a great piece of work, as you guys always do. But give us sort of the thumbnail sketch uh, on, on the, your report and your recommendations on how to get it right because you salted that you know, in your answer a little bit, but let's more specifically talk about the report. Uh, yeah, I'll just lead off really quick to say that the report was designed to um, provide an alternative approach to JADC2 that we think would be more likely to result in uh, the integration of joint forces in the time frame that we need it, which is, you know, within this decade, clearly, to be able to, to deal with Russia and China. Um, so that requires you, as Dan said, to swap from a you know, kind of top-down universal approach to fixing DOD's interoperability problems to instead go bottom-up and focus on individual use cases that solve operational problems that combat commanders face today, and then use that bottom-up approach to build out more use cases over time where we increasingly have a more interoperable force focused on the, you know, the, the forces that matter the most that are deployed out to the combat commanders and they're dealing with you know, actual challenges that the combat commanders need to fix. So, you know, for example, Indo-PACOM has to be able to maintain our air operations from Guam in almost any scenario it faces against China. Okay, well, what is the, what are the set of uh, missions and the plays you know, that the force needs to be able to accomplish to support addressing that operational challenge? Start there and then start to build out from that. Uh, Dan? Yeah, uh, my takeaways are, look, joint integration is really hard. DOD just wasn't designed for it. There's nobody in charge of bringing together the technical aspects of Air Force and Navy capabilities. There's no program office running that. There's no organization set up to do it. So this is a hard problem, but it's a problem with a huge payoff. It's a huge payoff for the United States uh, that, can, that can play into to our strengths around mission command. Uh, so, you know, I think our report unbundles that, you know, why it's hard, where the institutional obstacles are, what some key lessons uh, of success are, which, you know, we can start small, we can make progress, we can turn this into to a strategic advantage. Yeah, and I'll, um, and I'll add, Vago, that um, we actually provide a recommendation on like how this process for JADC2 should work. So instead of focusing on what the services and what OSD might want, let's focus on what the combatant commanders need. Um, and we build a process for doing that, leveraging um, work that's already happening today. So there's a mission management pilot that's happening today uh, inside DOD that was mandated by last year's, or I guess this year's uh, National Defense Authorization Act. Um, that mission management pilot is beginning to do this kind of work. So it's making Indo-Pacific Command identify an operational challenge they need to solve. It's making the Strategic Capabilities Office be in charge of uh, helping them solve it as their mission manager. Um, and so it's got it's starting to build the bones, if you will, of what JADC2 should really look like and, and focus it on the customer, which is the combatant commander, rather than focusing it on what you know the supplier wants back in DOD. So because our current develop our current process of delivering forces is very industrial. It's a very industrial model. Like you know, Henry Ford said you can have any model T or you can have right. a model T in any color you want as long as it's black. Well, that's how DOD treats the combat commanders. Um, so refocusing the attention back on the customer um, and building a process that, that integrates joint forces at the edge instead of trying to integrate them uh, from birth. Uh, that's really the approach we're talking about. I uh, think if you just look at what is uh, happening with the Russians, uh, obviously some of this 
we are offering uh, assistance that is helping the Ukrainians and confounding uh, the Russians, uh, ultimately. Uh, I mean, this is a critical capability, and I'm a little disappointed that it is not as much of a priority, and, and we are using a lot more of a laissez-faire approach and trying to figure out how we integrate stuff that we already, um, it, you know, some of this will be uh, existing systems, obviously, that you have to use, but I would like it to be a more integrated frame as opposed to a disaggregated frame that we figure out how to manage to collect, connect those pipes eventually. Um, and that's that's a little problematic. Dan, is there a last thought that you have before we wrap up? I think this is a great discussion. Encourage, encourage your listeners to, to go check that report out. Well said. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, joining us. Thank you very much, Fago. Thank you. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And joining me now is Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, uh, who is here at uh, Navy League along with me. Byron, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. And great to be back at Navy League, too. Uh, indeed, we're uh, back live and in uh, person. Uh, what did you pick up? What are you picking up, uh, Brian? I mean, you spent some time on the show floor, and obviously there was the uh, addresses early uh, earlier today. Uh, we heard from the three chiefs, from uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, as well as the Commandant of the Coast Guard, uh, Admiral uh, Schultz. Uh, you know, one of the points I think Berger made was but, you know, given that he faces an insurrection uh, from uh, some of his predecessors and other senior uh, retired Marine uh, general officers, more remains the same about the Marine Corps than remains different. And he made a, a great point, right? Let's, um, let's be cognizant that if you're a combatant commander, you want capability today and now talked about uh, General McKenzie's retirement ceremony, the retiring CENTCOM. Chief of Naval Operations made clear, look, we're, we're trying to leap ahead to a new generation of platforms. From your standpoint, what are some of the key messages and just the chi and the vibe that you're picking up here at the show? Well, I think a couple of things. First, I think the major shipbuilding programs generally seem to be in pretty good shape, both submarine and surface combatant. Um, the logistics ships as well. Obviously, there's a lot going on when you get into the, some of the ships that would enable a vision that the Commandant has talked about. Um, but I think there's still always been that tension between large and small in the Navy, and we're probably seeing that play out again. Uh, large ships may tend to be more survivable, for example, and there may still be some lessons from the Russian Navy in the Black Sea and how well they're performing or not performing. Um, I think the other, the other key takeaway, just kind of walking around the floor and seeing what people are talking about is networks, <clears throat> and that this is not single platforms anymore. This really is about networks and kind of stitching everything together. That's not a new message, but since this is one of the first big in-person shows, since we had that little interlude uh, between, uh, I forget, Omicron and the and Delta variant of, of COVID, um, it's just interesting to see that message um, reiterated. And the other thing that just jumped out to me today was to see companies like Endural um, start to have pretty major show floor presence here. Um, some of the small tech, up, tech startup companies are not sitting at the back of the uh, exhibition floor in what looks like a coffee table. You know, they've got pretty big standalone exhibits in their own right. So they're definitely factors in this market. 
Um, I, uh, it, it absolutely is uh, fascinating, right? I mean, over the decades, you can track uh, the progress, and defense industrial progress, uh, and, and merger and acquisition trends from, from uh, looking at who's been displaying and how they display. Um, I should point out, uh, right, longer range capabilities. The, I, should, I should point out the CNO, uh, Admiral Gilday, did talk about, you know, look, we need longer uh, strike missiles to give us more, more of that reach and, and wants to get into a future that is maybe a smaller but a much more capable force uh, at the end of the day. You know, you mentioned command and control. That's that's obviously an important component. What are some of the other things that you've spotted uh, that you think is is just interesting at the show as you as you go around? Um, well, I suppose the other thing it's it's the stuff that's not here. It's a classified program. It's it's NGAD, for example, that uh, next generation air dominance. That um, you know there was a PEO brief on. Uh, naval aviation this morning and just kind of, hey, you know, that's ramping up and it's going to be a big program, but what more can they say? So um, smaller UAS systems, a lot of that still, a lot still on undersea. But again, this kind of gets back to um, the network capability and what autonomy, I, I don't know how many panel discussions are going to be on autonomy at this show, but it's still a big theme for the Navy as well, too. Let me ask you about Quad A uh, for a moment. Right at the, as we gather here, uh, we're also covering the Army Aviation Association of America's annual conference. That's in Nashville, Tennessee. The Army Aviation leadership is going to be talking. There's been a lot of debate and discussion that you know that the American defense budget actually continued to back some programs, whether it's on heavy armor. Right, Commandant of the Marine Corps has come under fire for saying, "Hey, we need less tanks," um, and also what the future of Army aviation is on a contested battlefield. U.S. Army leaders would say we would prosecute a campaign very differently than the Russians. But from your standpoint, what are some of the lessons and, and some of the questions you'd like to see answered, uh, whether they're from Navy, Marine Corps, or Army leaders? Well, look, no one, no one knows the answers to this right now, right? These are all assessments. And this, like a lot of change in the world, it's going to take months to really play out. Um, I think the big question is, you know, what's the Russian threat look like in 2025, 26, 27? Um, do they still have as capable a submarine force? You know, is this North Korea on the Volga um, with really, you know, a very different force posture um, than, than the one that we've been building defense plans around in, in the last couple of years? So. It's still open um, to Army aviation and the performance of helicopters in Ukraine, Russian helicopters in Ukraine. I don't think there are any major takeaways. We, we've been through that debate before. Um, talk to people in, in the Army or some of the helicopter manufacturers, and they'll say, well, we don't operate our attack helicopters, our scout helicopters, the same way the Russians do. And so don't, don't take away the wrong lesson about the future of Army aviation from what's happening in Ukraine. And armor? Same. I mean, uh, you can go back to the Spanish Civil War. Um, you know, Russian tanks uh, did very poorly against German and Italian anti-tank guns. And, oh, the tank's over. You know, who, who needs this stuff? So we just seem to go through these iterations. Uh, it's a contest. Um, people are going to learn from this. You know, uh, I think the Israelis learned on the first day of the 1973 war, you don't send tanks charging against infantry positions where there's no suppressive fire. And so, unfortunately, the Russians did not heed that lesson, and they paid a heavy price for it. 
uh, and uh, now the Enlon and the Javelin join the ranks of the Sagar uh, missile uh, as, uh, as, as, uh, as tank killers, although I have to point out that I, I don't know whether there's a country that can claim more dead tanks than Ukraine uh, yeah. does <laughs> yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, historically speaking, of course. Um, let me ask you about the Russo-Ukrainian uh, war. We're going now into the sixth week, right? Folks had expected this to be a cakewalk and a quick campaign. Uh, the Russians appear in their own planning to have looked at a 12-day scenario to take the country now uh, Russians aren't are not just re retreating they've been pushed back by Ukrainian forces so they're going to consolidate in the east of the country uh, and take a pause to refresh hence some of the Ukrainian attacks into Belgorod to d disrupt fuel and ammunition uh, resupply lines from your standpoint where where where's your thinking about where this conflict is um, you know I suppose as we speak um, particularly given the news of the uh, the really atrocious pictures about what was being unveiled or revealed uh, after the Russians pulled back from the area around Kiev, um, that this is probably going to go on longer than, than I'd been assuming. Um, I want to do a little bit more thinking on that, but I think, you know, it's a combination of how do you really sit down and negotiate a peace uh, when something like this has happened in your country? And I think the other part is <clears throat> at the margin, there may be more willingness of NATO to step up, uh, you know, some of the talk over the weekend about. Maybe we can give uh, the Ukrainians T-72s out of, out of NATO stocks in the countries that operate those vehicles. So um, I'm not sure about BMP-1s, if that's really a good idea from the Germans, but uh, that's a pretty ineffective uh, infantry fighting vehicle. But I think this is going to go on longer, um, and, and it really just comes down to, you know, either, either one side prevails over the other or both just kind of collapse in exhaustion because they've gone through their offensive defensive capabilities and we're not there today. Um, there is um, this, um, some of, obviously there's this sense uh, that Vladimir Putin, that, that self-deterring is a bad idea. Almost everybody who knows Russia knows Putin, whether they're former oligarchs or anybody who is close in to the Russian leadership structure has made that point. Um, but then there are those who've looked at this campaign and saying, oh, you know, this is going to backfire, it was a miscalculation, and it's going to drive Putin from power. That we've heavily sanctioned, probably nobody has been sanctioned the way that we are sanctioning the Russians. But still, this could take a long time. How, how long do we have to be thinking on the Russian side of things? Because there, there's, there are some who think, well, that's going to get clarity sooner than later, and it actually may be a lot later. I, I don't have a strong view on it. I mean, you look at people like Saddam Hussein, who arguably suffered, you know, horrific military defeat in 1991, still in power. You know, it, it took a U.S. invasion to overthrow him, finally. Um, a lot of dictators have lived well beyond... Uh, their competency would suggest. So it, 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 for all I know, he could well die of, of old age. Uh, you know, <laughs> those things can happen too, um, as Joseph Stalin um, had, had evidence in his life. And what does that mean, though, right? I mean, so as we've ratcheted up these sanctions up, Putin is looking to the West blinking at some point and getting back to normal, and then he gets away with his atrocities. I mean, how do you how do we square that? Or is this a new semi-hot, semi-cold, or or maybe you know, as as I wrote, you know, World War Three? It's just different from the last two wars. Yeah, I, I think it's probably it's it's not the same as the Cold War because Russia is not the USSR um, in, in population and demographics. 
But I do think there will be sanctions fatigue. That's something that he's probably betting on. I still, in my heart, believe that China cannot let Russia fail uh, and pivot decisively to the West. Um, so it could be a protracted long-term struggle. And, uh, you know, at a level, I think we can throw out the little green man and all the other kind of niceties of this. It, it can be pretty brutal. I don't know if it's going to be a full-blown uh, war along the lines of, you know, what we've seen in 1940s, but, um, but it's going to be a contest and it could be a, a real marathon. And when you throw China in the mix, it's a, it's, it already has been a marathon. We just may have another runner in it. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, key events of the week. Uh, let's take a look at the week uh, ahead. What should our audience be paying attention to? What are you paying attention to? Well, I think first, you know, kind of what comes out of these trade shows you mentioned, you know, Quad A for the Army Aviation Community, the Navy for Sea Air Space. Uh, Space Symposium is taking place out in Colorado Springs. That's a pretty important event for that community. Um, you know, and, and I think all three are kind of hallmarks of the world seems to be getting back to normal a bit. Um, the oversight hearings in Congress in our full swing. Uh, the FY23 budget will be on display uh, for all to kick around, I think, uh, in the House and Senate Armed Services Committee with uh, Secretary of Defense Austin and uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, so, and, and there's another hearing that I think will be interest that Senate Armed Services Committee is holding on defense innovation with Heidi Hsu and some of the other leadership that work that problem in Department of Defense. So those are the main items. There, there are, of course, a couple other conferences and events, but uh, it's a pretty full plate this week. Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Lovely seeing you in uh, in person. Last time we saw each other was uh, last August, yeah. where we had the uh, uh, Navy League, and hopefully we're getting back to a more normal universe. Are you betting on BA2 interrupting things, or do you think we're smooth sailing here on out? Who knows? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to get another booster, and you know, be a good be a good uh, citizen. <laughs> Thank you very much, America. Thanks you, Byron. <laughs> And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.